Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. My name is Aubrey, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star then zero on your touchstone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former Editor and Health Correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thank you, Aubrey. Well, hello and welcome everyone to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Author in the Room is made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. I am indeed Madge Kaplan. I'm Senior Communications Strategist at IHI, and I moderate these monthly discussions and always look forward to them. Uh, they are designed to translate knowledge that is published in an article into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Anna Tadio. She's the first author of the article, Intravenous Morphine and Topical Tetracaine for Treatment of Pain in Preterm Neonates Undergoing Central Line Emplacement. That article was published in the February 15, 2006 issue of JAMA. Dr. Tadio is a scientist and registered pharmacist in the Neonatal Intensive Care Unit at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. Her research focuses on the clinical pharmacology of analgesics in infants and children, the effects of untreated pain, and the barriers to routine utilization of analgesia. Also welcome co-author of the article, Dr. Vibhuti Shah. Uh, she's a neonatologist, a researcher in pain at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. So welcome to both of you. Are you there? Yeah, good. Okay, good to have you both with us. I want to make sure you're there. <laughs> also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Tadio's research with an eye toward clinical improvement is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon. He's a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Welcome, Dr. Kylo. Good to be here, Madge. The purpose of Author in the Room is for you to hear directly from an author, today it's authors, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. Making that leap from what's on the page to changing how care is delivered can be so daunting. That's why each Author in the Room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert, such as Dr. Kylo, who's with us today. And what he'll do, in part, is provide a sort of improvement roadmap and break things down into manageable parts, some of which can be acted upon, we hope, right away. So here's how the hour will proceed. Dr. Tadio will spend about 10 minutes summarizing her findings. Dr. Kylo will then take about the same amount of time to describe overall improvement methods and suggest practical ways to apply the research findings to medical practice. At the bottom of the hour, about 2.30 Eastern time, or very close to that, we'll turn to questions from callers, from Dr. Tadio, uh, Dr. Shaw, and Dr. Kylo, and we look forward to some discussion. To those of you who have 
dialed in, I want to stress how important your participation in these calls is. This is a great forum in which to get clarification on anything in the article itself. You're hearing directly from the lead authors. And to contemplate with others the significance of the findings and the steps you might take, some immediately, to improve the care of a very vulnerable population of newborns. Uh, we think there are maybe getting close to 70 people on the phone with us today, even more registered, so we hope you're all there. Members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. So welcome all. Let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Anna Taddeo, who will provide an overview of newly published findings on the effectiveness and safety of different methods for alleviating pain in ventilated neonates when facing a central line. Welcome, Dr. Taddeo, and go ahead. Thank you very much, Madge. It's very good to be here. So let me summarize the study briefly. In this study, we evaluated the analgesic efficacy and safety of intravenous morphine and topical tetracaine gel for central line placement in ventilated neonates. We undertook the study because there was limited published data on the clinical pharmacology of these agents, and it was difficult to know what to do in clinical practice. The study involved 111 preterm and full-term neonates but received either tetracaine gel, intravenous morphine, or intravenous morphine plus tetracaine gel in a randomized fashion prior to central line placement. A separate non-randomized group of 21 infants that fulfilled the same inclusion and exclusion criteria, namely that they were ventilated and did not receive any analgesia for the procedure, served as a no-treatment control group. The gestational ages of infants at the time of the study ranged from 24 to 42 weeks, and on average they were one week old. We measured infant pain responses during the procedure, and we looked at facial grimacing, specifically the proportion of time that neonates exhibited bulging of the brow, which occurs when the eyebrows come down and together. We also measured heart rate and oxygen saturation. For safety, we measured changes in blood pressure, ventilation, and skin reactions. We found that morphine plus tetracaine together reduced pain responses the most during the procedure, followed by morphine alone, then tetracaine, as measured by facial grimacing and heart rate. Using brow bulge scores during the needle poke, the tetracaine decreased the responses by about 30%, while morphine decreased responses by about 60%, and the combination of morphine and tetracaine decreased pain responses by about 75%. However, for tetracaine alone, scores were not consistently different from the no-analgesia group. Similarly, scores for the tetracaine plus morphine group were not significantly different from morphine alone. Together, these data suggest that tetracaine is a relatively weak analgesic. These results are consistent with the way the drugs act. Tetracaine will only block sensation from the needle poke where it's applied, whereas morphine will decrease pain or discomfort from all sources of noxious input, not just the needle. Morphine was associated with an increased ventilatory rate of about four breaths per minute for the first 12 hours after the dose, and a trend towards a higher risk of hypotension. Tetracaine gel caused reddening of the skin in about one-third of infants. To summarize then, we found that morphine or morphine plus tetracaine together were more effective than tetracaine alone or no analgesia for managing pain during central line placement in ventilated neonates. And we recommend that these drugs be used to manage pain for central line placement. Comparing our results with other studies in the literature, there are some similarities and some differences. Some of the older studies 
demonstrate analgesic efficacy of morphine and tetracaine, whereas some of the newer studies do not. Small sample sizes and different methods of pain assessment may be at least partially uh, to explain why there are inconsistencies in the effects in the different trials. In our study, we evaluated pain using facial grimacing and heart rate as the primary and secondary measures of efficacy. Although one might wish to have a single measure of pain, the manifestations of pain may be different for infants undergoing different procedures or infants of different gestational ages or underlying conditions. We use brow bulge as the primary outcome because it is highly sensitive and specific to pain and it's reliably observed even in the youngest of infants. And we were interested in determining the specific effects of the drugs on individual parameters of the pain response. And using a composite measure would not have allowed us to determine the specific effects of the drugs on these parameters. So in conclusion then, uh, our key messages would be that infants do feel pain during central line placement, and this pain can be reduced with analgesics. Morphine alone or morphine in combination with tetracaine gel is more effective than tetracaine alone or no analgesia, and both medications are associated with expected side effects. Morphine causes respiratory depression, and tetracaine causes reddening of the skin. Future studies, however, will be needed to determine if morphine can be used in non-ventilated neonates, as our study was only for infants that were ventilated. Thanks, Matt. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Taddeo. Now, we want to turn to what this research and our author's recommendations uh, and findings suggest about changes in clinical practice that clinicians and those in a position to improve clinical practice might consider. That's when we turn to Dr. Kylo and we ask, where do we begin if we want to translate this research uh, into some changes in care? Uh, Dr. Kylo, go ahead. Thanks, Madge, and thanks, Dr. Tadio and uh, Dr. Shaw for your fantastic study, and greetings, everyone. Uh, on the call today, we have actually uh, a decent number of uh, various types of clinicians. We have nurses uh, in good numbers and uh, uh, physicians, pharmacists, and uh, uh, several administrators. So we're excited to get your feedback. The challenge that we all have as clinicians is to take lessons from studies like this and to use them to make improvements in our daily care. Um, to improve the care that we actually deliver to our patients, in this case, uh, to the neonates that we uh, care for. The value, after all, of good research is to provide guidance on how to make practice better, and that's really what we're focused on in these calls, as Madge uh, uh, stated earlier. At the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, we use a tool to guide our improvement work. It's called the Model for Improvement to bring about rapid improvement. The model really is disarmingly simple. The, in its essence, it is uh, the scientific method applied to the management and improvement of our work processes. Uh, it can be a lot harder to implement than it sounds, unfortunately. And I just want to spend just a few minutes talking about the model for improvement to get us all thinking about that because, again, that is our focus. It's taking the science and getting it into practice. The model for improvement really has two parts. The first part uh, you decide explicitly what you want to accomplish, what your aims are. In the second part, we begin to test changes to see uh, if we can get closer to that aim. 
Now, this first part uh, has three components, and I want to describe those uh, to you briefly. Uh, the first is the establishment of a specific aim with specific goals and timelines in the way that everybody can understand. For example, uh, as relates to this particular study, you might have in your NICU, our aim is to improve pain management uh, as measured by a standardized pain measurement system by 75% in one year. Uh, the second part uh, is to establish measures so that you can tell if the changes you're making are actually leading to improvement. For example, you might measure, in this case, uh, adverse drug events in neonates during pain management, and you would obviously measure uh, uh, the pain scale itself uh, in those receiving pain management. Third, you would begin to identify testable changes that are likely to lead to improvement, and we're going to spend uh, most of the second half of this call talking about those changes that, that are applicable in your neonatal ICUs. The second part of the model is the rapid testing of changes in the way we practice in order to accomplish your aims. Remember that in most medical literature, when a study is published, it can take up to 10 to 15 years to get that good science into care, and we want to avoid that. And the way to avoid that is by using the model for improvement. And it is by taking such good science uh, that Drs. Uh, Tadio and Shaw uh, published for us, and getting it into practice by using this rapid testing of change. Um, in improvement parlance, this process of testing change is called the Plan to Study Act cycle, or the PDSA cycle. In other words, you plan a test, you do the test, you collect some data and study the results, and then you act upon what you learn to inform the next cycle of testing. We do this every day in our normal lives, we just don't think about it as formally. If the quality improvement language of the Plan, Do, Study, Act, or PDSA cycle doesn't sit well with you, that's fine. Just think about this uh, in terms of the explicit, rapid, action-oriented learning is very much like the scientific method. So using the best available knowledge, you try something, measure the results, understand the results of that trial, and then fold it into the learning of the next trial. Well, the next topic uh, is that of implementation. <clears throat> when are you ready to stop testing and to start making the changes permanent, a permanent part of your everyday practice? And the answer obviously depends on many factors. When you've run successful tests of change and you understand the results, you'll clearly be in a much better position to know uh, that uh, the changes you've made are ready for implementation on a broader scale. For example, to move from testing a change with one physician to implementing a change in the entire group or in this case, again, in your neonatal ICU. So again, Dr. Tadio uh, uh, has several recommendations that she can make for us which really pertain to this study and the general topic of pain management in neonates which we're also interested in. Uh, and so we will turn back to Dr. Tadio at this time. Please remember that in our discussion, which will, will be for the next, uh, uh, well, 45 minutes or so, uh, we really want to focus the conversation on improvement, the improvement aspects of this study. It's fair game to ask a couple of questions about the methodology, but the methodology is very sound. It was, removed, it was reviewed very stringently by... Uh, by JAMA before publication, as all of their studies are. And so our focus really ought to be on how do we take this knowledge and get it into practice. And just as a reminder, we are actually very interested in what you have done in your neonatal ICUs to improve pain management also. So Dr. Tadio, uh, based on your study and your knowledge of pain management uh, in the neonatal ICU, what changes would you suggest that uh, folks on the call would consider? Uh, well, it's clear from our study that uh, analgesics should be used to manage pain from this procedure as they're effective. And what's good about the study is for the first time now we have 
actually a quantification of their effect. So we have a magnitude of effect that we see with the different drugs that we can measure. So we know how well they're acting, not just that they work or they don't work. And we also have a sense of how frequently we're going to see side effects, side effects with each of the agents. So having all that information is very useful for us to be able to design um, or develop pain management protocols for this procedure. So what we have found in our own experience is that to be able to translate knowledge into practice is you need to have a committee, you need to have a group of people, uh, whether they have a special interest in pain or if there's just uh, standing committees in the NICU that can be interested in these issues and then be able to uh, try to implement new information. So I'd be interested in, in seeing uh, people review current pain management protocols in their ICU and then look at the new information that's available and decide if they can implement it and then look at the, the surrounding uh, broader issues that need to be addressed, which are what pain assessment tools are they using, how can they make sure that these pain assessment tools are being used when the drugs are given to ensure that they're getting the expected results that they want. And then also involve parents in this uh, paradigm to know what their expectations are for pain management in their infants. Fantastic match. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm very busily here taking notes, <laughs> as I hope others are too. Very, very interesting, and those are two really interesting issues as well. Um, the involvement of family members, parents in this case, um, and also mentioning of pain assessment tools. And it would be, you know, perhaps we can talk about all that more. Um, so, Dr. Kylie, you think we should we just go ahead now and open up the lines and see what's on people's minds? I think we should. I think okay. we've got to, yeah. All right, let's do it. Um, we are now going to turn to questions from our callers. Uh, this research uh, and sort of Dr. Kylo's challenge here uh, shed some important light on pain management for newborns, uh, neonates, and uh, in intensive care. We're eager to hear your questions and also to find out uh, how you may already be acting on this kind of knowledge. And you can address your questions to all, to Dr. Taddeo, to Dr. Shaw, and to Dr. Kylo. Uh, we We'd love to know who you are and uh, what n the nature of, of the work that you do in, in healthcare. So, Aubrey, let's go ahead and uh, open up the lines. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, if you would like to ask a question, you may do so by pressing zero one on your touchstone phone. This will place you into a queue, and we will open up the lines one by one so that you may each ask your question. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press zero, then the two keys. And our first question will come from Marsha with Health Care Communication Association. Please go ahead. Hi, this is Marsha Levittown in Houston, Texas. I'm a pediatric intensivist originally and now primarily an educator. Um, and I'm sorry? Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh -huh. Thank you. Um, it seems to me that um, when you are trying to do a, um, improvement, um, a quality improvement initiative, it's important to really understand the narrowness of what you're trying to do, and this is really not about general pain management. It is, it is all about procedure-related pain management, and specifically for a central line, so that I think would need to be part of the script of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and I'm so glad that Dr. Tadio and her colleagues have done this um, research because it's so important given the number of procedures these kids undergo. One um, thought I have or concern I would have in implementing this broadly would be the difficulty of quantifying the brow bulge 
uh, as a measure and wondered a bit about the training associated with that. And a suggestion might be in terms of gaining broad spectrum um, buy-in to the idea that we ought to do this, that we might want to evaluate the frequency of complications like the development of BPD and um, necrosis in these patients who are known to have those associated with low oxygen, which happens when they're in a lot of pain length of stay and duration of mechanical ventilation as potential outcomes beyond just, you know, um, you know, having to breathe more rapidly or having redness on their skin because those might be more meaningful outcomes to people like neonatologists and others that might be involved in the study. Okay, very, very interesting. Uh, Dr. Taddeo uh, and perhaps Dr. Shah, do you, do you want to go ahead and answer? Sure. Um, thank you for uh, the kind words uh, that you said about us doing the study. We did feel that we did need information, so it's good to know that some people value it, and we certainly value it in our unit. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right that there are lots of uh, things that we can look for uh, after using analgesics. In our case, of course, since it's a single-dose study, um, we're not too uh, worried about things such as duration of ventilation or development of P BPD, as we don't expect one dose of the drug to make a difference. But if you are going to be using pain relievers for multiple procedures, and these kids can have numerous over their hospitalization, there is a potential impact on other clinical outcomes. And that was clearly borne out in Dr. Sonny and Ann's trial, which I'm sure most of the audience will be familiar with, uh, where he looked at the effect of uh, morphine infusions on ventilated neonates, and he did find that there was an increased duration in uh, ventilation in those babies. So there are other markers, and with your question, with your question or comment regarding brow bulge, it's true. This is not easily uh, translated into something, except that the face is really the um, sort of most sensitive way we have and most specific way we have to assess pain. And I think most nurses do look at babies' faces and can definitely be trained to use t tools uh, to say what the facial score is. So this has been done. And um, for Dr. Grunau's neonatal facial coding system, which is where the brow bulge comes from. Right. So the bedside sort of uh, clinical feasibility of that tool has been established. And as well, you may be familiar with the PIP tool. That's kind of the most commonly used composite measure of pain. Uh, and it involves facial actions. There's a manual that goes with it, and, and nurses are trained to use it, as well as physicians. And it has been able to be used at the bedside. So uh, I don't think it's impossible to, to uh, measure it, but there are definitely those challenges, those hurdles, and that people need to know how to measure pain and, and need to know how to assess the outcome of the intervention. Okay. And hopefully that answers or addresses some of your comments. Yes, I hope so, too. Thank you very much. Ed, let me just jump yeah, in. Yeah, jump in. Go ahead. Uh, I, you know, that was a really beautiful response. And from an improvement perspective, um, as we think about this, and uh, the folks on the call think about it as it pertains to their particular work and their neonatal ICUs, it really is critically important that we begin to standardize our measurement systems. And Dr. Tadio has just spoken to that point. Even though those measurement systems may not be perfect, it's better than having no standardized measures at all. And pain management is a critical thing. We've known for a long time that it's obviously critical in adults, and we do a relatively poor job in adults. And, uh, and we have data that pain management in neonates has been relatively non-standardized also. So beginning in your ICU to just standardize the measurement system is really a critical thing, admitting that we're probably not perfect and, and, and admitting that that's okay that the measurement systems are not perfect. It's as good as we have right now. 
any improvement that we do really is going to be predicated on a relatively standardized measurement system that we use over time so that we compare a practice that we had before with the tests that we're running now to understand if we're making improvements uh, on those metrics. And I think probably during the, the rest of the call we'll have a chance to come back to some of those issues about measurement because I think they're really important. And I know Dr. Tadio and Dr. Shaw have a lot of thoughts about that. All right. Terrific. Okay. Let's go to another question, uh, Aubrey. Our next question will be from Jean with Fairview Hospital. Please go ahead. This is uh, Dr. Prasad Ashanti from Neonatology. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, uh, welcome very much. Uh, we, we do hear you. Yes. Thank you. My question is, um, this uh, analgesia is being recommended for a percutaneous central line, I'm assuming, right? Percutaneous central lines, yes? Yes. Good. Uh, so, technically, uh, these lines, in terms of pain intensity, the same like any other IVs we start, uh, just we obtain from most of these babies by percutaneous route. And these babies will be going through so many of the procedures a typical baby does in the hospitalization, especially initially when they are sick. Um, and my concern is this is going to be overused, will may ultimately lead to poor long-term outcome um, if we're going to routinely use this for all blood drawing procedures and starting IVs and all that. Okay, that's an interesting question. Uh, Dr. Tadio? Yep, that's a very good uh, question uh, because we don't have the information about the safety of uh, repeated use or what the implications are of using it uh, continuously. Uh, I want to say that uh, when we decided that we would evaluate morphine, it was because uh, people were concerned with the duration of the procedure. So one of the factors that uh, played in our, on our uh, decision to use morphine was that central lines it may take a long time to put in, upwards of 20 minutes, and a lot of times they're unsuccessful on the first attempt, and so babies undergo repeated pokes. And we wanted to have morphine there because it could help decrease the distress that was caused by multiple pokes, multiple attempts, multiple manipulations. And that's not untrue for IV starts, too, because there's going to be situations where babies have multiple pokes for IV starts. So it's unclear. Um, whether morphine can be used for IV starts. Um, but it certainly is something that people can consider if they have a baby that's already undergone numerous stabs and is a, a baby with difficult IV access and where they anticipate that it's going to take a lot of pokes to um, secure an IV. Um, that's a very good point. Maybe Dr. Shaw wants to add something to that. Oh, yes, please. Go ahead. Well, based on our clinical experience, we know that you know when we put in, when we decide to put in thick lines, you know, uh, that it is for the tiniest babies who probably undergo multiple procedures anyway. But uh, we weigh the, you know, the risk of giving medication versus the benefits. And I think that when we consider using drugs, we always think about it, as Anna said before, even if we consider using morphine. And the degree of ventilatory needs is only for a short duration. So I think if the baby is in pain, we should consider using it. I don't think babies undergo repeated pick line insertions, and we try to put them in early so that we avoid multiple venipunctures. punctures. Because these are babies who need long-term nutrition, total parental nutrition or medication, and those are the ones that we would consider. So I think we think about putting pick lines in before, you know, the decision's not made lightly in these babies to about inserting pick lines. But that's also okay. Thank you. Considered. 
All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's an in interesting question. Glad it came up. Uh, an interesting answer. Um, next question. Okay. Our next question will be from Paul with St. John Detroit Riverview Hospital. Please go ahead. Hi. This is uh, Paul Holtrip. I'm a neonatologist in Detroit. And see, my question was mostly the, the one of the, the previous caller. And um, I think given Dr. Anand's study, which showed uh, some <laughs> perhaps worse outcomes in babies who got more morphine. Uh, and given the fact that in adults, we're not usually using um, narcotic analgesia when they're given uh, percutaneous central lines, I'm, I'm wondering where do we draw the line? What procedures do you recommend narcotic analgesia for versus uh, something less uh, strong, uh, such as sucrose or something? Okay, well, uh, you know, sort of moving, it's, this is somewhat, you know, moving, of course, uh, beyond the, the paper and, and in question, but I think it's an interesting one. Dr. Taddeo, are, are you comfortable uh, going there? I would say um, yeah. you raise a good point. Uh, where do you draw the line? Um, it's interesting that uh, for us, we, as, as we said before, we weigh the sort of the invasiveness of the procedure, duration of the procedure, and anticipated stress on the baby. So central lines are clearly... Uh, lasting longer, um, and we want the babies to be less stressed because uh, it may impact on the success rate of the procedure, and so we would recommend it. Um, for every procedure, we don't know. We can implement sucrose, and I know some places do already use sucrose as part of PICC line insertions to try to decrease pain response. Um, People will have to make their own minds up, I think, in the unit and, and look at the literature and decide how best to implement the information. There's a little bit of controversy in the literature right now uh, for morphine's effectiveness for other procedures. And uh, with the study that you mentioned with Dr. Anand's study, uh, p people have maybe um, uh, diminished the amount of morphine they're using for fear that it might uh, make the situation a little bit worse. Although in um, my own review of his papers and, and speaking to him about his studies, it's not clear if the babies who... Uh, had worse outcomes, actually had worse outcomes because of the morphine or just morphine was used more often in the babies who had worse outcomes. Right. In other words, you know, you read that probably into the papers too. So yeah. we have to be careful. But clearly the results weren't what people expected them to be, right? So people expected uh, morphine to do all grandiose things and make babies healthier and happier, <laughs> and it didn't do that. Um, so... Whether analgesia should do that is another question. Do we really expect morphine to improve clinical outcome, or are we just trying to decrease pain and suffering? And in all other age groups, uh, you know, we use analgesia to decrease pain and suffering and to potentially decrease the risk of changes to the nervous system due to pain. So untreated pain causes long-term problems, and there's a percentage of adults we know that... Uh, develop allodynia or chronic pain syndromes after surgery, like 10% of them or something like that. So we're trying to decrease pain to not only decrease pain and suffering, but also prevent long-term outcomes that are negative or long-term bad outcomes that are due to pain. And there's no reason to not do that in a baby. And maybe we shouldn't expect the clinical outcome to be significantly improved. So it depends what are our goals. When we're giving analgesia, we have to know what our goals are. And first and foremost, what uh, Dr. Shaw was saying, it's to decrease pain and suffering. And uh, secondly, I would say, is to try to decrease the risk of other complications due to pain that may be in the short term, but also long term, that haven't been well investigated, and we don't really know yet 
what all the impact is of pain. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for that kind of follow-up question on the other one. Uh, other areas and other questions? Let's go ahead. Okay. Our next question will be from Maureen with UUHC. Please go ahead. Oh, go ahead with the question. There I am. Hello. 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 <laughs> There's a few of us in here trying to decide who's going to ask the question. My name is Stephanie. I'm actually the vascular access nurse for the NICU here. And I had a question about whether the tetracaine had any vasoconstriction effects on the vessels and whether they were smaller to actually poke and to visualize with this, with this treatment. Okay, great. Thanks, Stephanie. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Patio. Uh, there were no reported differences in nurses' perceptions of whether it was easier or harder to uh, get the IV in, uh, regardless of the treatment that was used. Uh, but we do know that the tetracaine caused a little bit of reddening of the skin, mild reddening, and that happened in about a third of babies who got it. So uh, if your question is, did that translate to any clinical impact on the person who was doing the procedure, none that they reported is the answer. Okay, thank you. And also, I, I would add that uh, the procedure success rate is not significantly different if you look at the different treatment groups. So the, uh, I think the IV success rate was in the order of 38% on the first try, and it wasn't different for the babies who got morphine or the babies who got tetracaine, suggesting that if there was a discoloration to the skin, it wasn't impacting on the ability to get the IV in. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to invite our uh, iLink operator, Aubrey, just to repeat for everybody uh, the technology of, of getting in on the questions here. She has a sense that there may be some people who don't quite understand the process. Go ahead, Aubrey. Ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, just press zero one on your telephone keypad, and then zero two will remove you from the questions queue. All right. Thanks, Aubrey. Okay, let's uh, keep going. Uh, Dr. Kylo, you're, you're quiet, but we know you're there. Uh, anything that strikes you uh, so far? Well, I've been, I've been uh, just listening to some of the questions, Madge, and thanks for inviting me back in. And I do <laughs> want to fess up to a couple of issues. In particular, the, uh, well, this last question was a very good one. The first three questions all came from uh, neonatologists, and they were all very good. And let me just try to tie them together because I think it's important. Um, uh, several folks mentioned that this is not about general pain management. This is really about this study. And I will argue the opposite, that this is really about general pain management. And it is frequently the case that, well, it is always the case that uh, the studies that are published in in uh, journals like JAMA address a very specific clinical topic from which we can use the study to draw positive or negative conclusions. But that study almost always has very significant system implications or can help us to think about the system of care that it is referring to. And in this case, uh, as an example, the specific study was really on pain management with central line placement in the ICU. Now, if we're really smart system thinkers, we will take this study for what it's worth in terms of understanding the specific issue uh, and results in terms of how do we manage pain around a single central line placement. But we will also ask ourselves, what are the implications for our system of pain management in the ICU, because we do have systems, whether they're 
thoughtful systems, rational systems, or irrational systems, whether they're organized or completely chaotic, there is a system there. And we can improve pain management by focusing on our systems of pain management in our NICUs. And that's really the bigger topic here that I think is critically important for us to focus on at this time with this study uh, being the study that sort of serves up the topic for us. Um, it really is important that we do reduce the amount of time that it takes for us to put in practice the specific science that these studies give to us, but it is also an imperative for us not to wait for randomized control studies to give us guidance on all of the things that we do. We do. So there will remain, and does remain obviously after this study, a lot of question about how ought we to be best manage pain uh, in the neonate. And all of the first uh, questioners really got at that, some of those outstanding questions. But we should not allow those outstanding questions to really be a showstopper. We should say, what do we know about best practice right now, and how do we get it into place? And then learn from our own performance, uh, learn how to improve pain management based on our own performance using standardized measurement systems and using studies like the one that Dr. Teddy or Dr. Shaw have, have, uh, have uh, given to us. So I will use a caveat, and I think we'll probably come sort of back to that point during the remainder of the calls in the Q&A sessions. Madge, I appreciate you asking. Oh, sure. And I really, I'm sure we all really appreciate that larger frame. Uh, I'm just going to butt in before we go to another question and um, ask Dr. Tadio because it's, it's sort of staying with me. When you talk about uh, parental involvement in the paradigm, uh, I can imagine a lot of the same kinds of concerns uh, that might arise as, as parents are trying to weigh benefits and risks, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, can you just expand on that point a little bit in terms of uh, this study and maybe in, even in light of some of the things Dr. Kyla was just talking about? Well, I, I can say um, in our own institution, we had uh, a survey of uh, parents and their perceptions of how much pain their child was experiencing. And we did this as a snapshot um, only one time, and, and we surveyed parents all over the hospital. And it was interesting that the NICU came up as the place where uh, I think uh, over 70% of parents thought their children were having pain at the time that they were asked, and they were very upset about it and very much wanting to have the baby's pain relieved. So I think, uh, you know, when we talk about who's interested in pain and what outcomes do we want to achieve, uh, that the parent becomes a very important part of that equation. And we do practice in a setting where we say we're trying to provide the best family-centered care that we can. And so having the parent come and help us to know what's the right thing to do is, is absolutely important. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, okay, Aubrey, let's uh, turn again to the phones. Okay, and we do have nine in the queue just for a heads up. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and the next question will be from Patricia with St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Great. Oh, hello. Actually, I've got about three questions for you. Right, um, I'll try to keep them going. Um, they were talking about giving the morphine and specifically talking about maybe even for starting peripheral IVs. I was just wondering, how are they um, giving the morphine if you don't have an IV access to begin with? Um, All right, why don't we take these one, one at a time. Okay. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Tadio. Well, in our case, we gave morphine intravenously. So we had an IV line. Uh, we ha often have, it's often the case that we have multiple lines. So when babies are having pick lines, they also have an alternative line that's not pulled or yanked out until uh, the pick line is secured. So we administered morphine intravenously through the line that they had, um, and that's what we did for the study. 
Okay, thanks. Uh, next question from you. Um, when, when you're doing your procedure, how often do you reassess for this uh, brow bulge and what kind of documentation do you make for it? In our, in our study, uh, we have the luxury of videotaping babies, so we look at the uh, videotapes at our leisure and we look at uh, brow bulging dur during the different segments of the procedure, so at before anything starts and then when the skin is being cleansed and the tourniquet is being applied, so at every step. Uh, we do an assessment of how much uh, brow bulging is occurring. Can you expand on that? Maybe um, either Dr. Shaw or Dr. Kylo, uh, as I also hear the question, um, what, what, in terms of an improvement practice, in terms of assessment, uh, I, I, that's sort of the way I heard the question, uh, as well as in the study itself. I'm just wondering uh, kind of tools around that kind of assessment uh, if in practice. Dr. Patio or, or, or Dr. Oh, well, I would say we we would use a checklist, or we would be marking on the you know on the checklist what, what uh, the score is, and then deciding if there was adequate analgesia. Now, that's what we would do in real life. In the in the in the context of the study, of course, you know this is done after the fact, so there's no assessment in real time. Uh, it's done later. But if right. a procedure was happening now on the unit and someone was wanting to evaluate whether something was working, clearly they would have to be taking multiple assessments during the procedure and then deciding if they want to stop or do something else or uh, if, if they're not getting the uh, results that they want. Okay, thanks. Um, okay, and, and uh, Patricia, I hope, I hope this is answering. I hope we're, we're kind of ticking off some of these yeah. things. Yeah. That, that's okay. My, uh, my last question would be, um, we put in quite a few pick lines, and the majority of them are infants that are not on ventilators. Are there any studies coming up for the unventilated infants? Uh, we don't know of any at the, at the moment. Uh, of course, we can take some of the information from this study to apply to a non-ventilated baby, and that is that we can at least give them tetracaine that will help a little bit for um, the pain of the poke. Uh, the concern, of course, with giving morphine is that you may depress depression. You may depress their respiration. Right. I am aware of units that do use morphine in non-ventilated babies, and usually they use a lower dose than they would in a ventilated baby, but this has not been evaluated in a study setting. I couldn't tell you, you know, what the absolute risks are for respiratory depression and how many babies would have to be intubated or would have to have a, a naloxone administered to reverse the effects. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much uh, for dialing in. Okay, let's move along. We've got a bunch of people in queue. Aubrey? The next question will be from Marcia with Baptist Memorial Hospital. Please go ahead. Sorry, my question was answered. Um, I was concerned about if the if there was a slight redness of the skin, did it uh, impair the visibility so that you wouldn't be able to see the vein when you were going to put in your pick line? And the answer is uh, no. So the the uh, success rate of the procedure was not different for those who got tetracaine versus those who got morphine. So there was no clinical consequence of the reddening. All right. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Marcia. Uh, next question. Next question will be from Val with St. Joseph's Healthcare. Uh, thank you. This is uh, David Knock, a pharmacist in uh, London, Ontario. Uh, about three or four years ago, we set up a, a pain task force with pharmacists and, uh, and nurses, and uh, we reviewed the literature and we came up with uh, the idea to use the NPASS scoring. And we instituted a, a, a trial to see if, if that would be a good uh, scoring system to use. We compared it against PIP, and, and it appeared that it was. And so we trained the nurses in the, tra in the use of this. And um, 
So we, we hoped that we would institute the impasse scoring, and it started out fine, but I don't think that um, that we're continuing to, 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 use that, 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 to use that scoring system. And so my question was, um, that Anne had addressed, was how do we ensure that those pain measurements are, are being done, not just for procedural pain, which I think are obvious, but you know, general, general type of pain. And then the second part of the question is, how can we ensure that that's, that scoring system and what the nurse is reporting is accepted by the physicians? Interesting issue, okay. And uh, I take it from your question that there, where, where you are, that there may be some resistance sometimes in that area? Uh, I don't know. If, yeah, I think that perhaps it's resistance or, or people just, just don't seem to be taking the initiative to do it. Okay, okay. Dr. Tadio uh, and Dr. Shaw, do you want to jump into that? Well, I, I would say, uh, do you think that they're forgetting to use it or is it a standard practice? Is it part of sort of the uh, orders? Uh, you know, uh, it depends if people are told that they it's part of what we do. You know, it's your fifth vital sign and you're doing an assessment and and it's recognized and people feel comfortable doing it. And also if, uh, if, they're, if people are paying attention to the answer or the number. So if it's working in the unit and everyone's together and, and understanding the language, I think sometimes people don't understand the language and it makes it difficult for people to implement or, or act on results, I should say. So, for example, we've had some issues in our unit. We usually use the PIP, and that's been promoted but, um, in our institution. And, of course, one of the developers of the PIP, uh, Bonnie Stevens, is working in our institution. So she's done a, a great job making sure that people understand how to score it. But there still is the occasion where uh, somebody doesn't know what the number means. So it can be as simple as that. It's, if people don't even know what it is, you say, oh, the PIP score is 12 and people just don't pay attention because it's of no meaning to them. So uh, maybe you have to go back and um, convene a group again to see uh, what's happening in the unit and maybe what some of the barriers are here to, to uh, using the end pass. In other words, you know, kind of look at it again, look at the issue again and see if uh, you're happy with the end pass or if, if that's part of the problem or if it's just particular individuals or if people are just forgetting. This sounds like, uh, thank you. I was just thinking, uh, Dr. Kylo, this, this sounds like an area where you might, this goes back to your kind of larger frame and systems and uh, kind of look at the, the terrain where uh, something is maybe not being done consistently and, and sort of how, how to kind of investigate either what the problem is or what would make things be done more consistently. Well, I think it's a great question, and I really like Dr. Cadio's response. Um, you know, and this really is where a hospital-wide pain management uh, uh, committee or a NICU-specific pain management uh, uh, committee can really come into play to begin to help to rationalize the overall system and how we think about pain. And Dr. Tadio mentioned that uh, uh, you know pain is the fifth vital sign, and in fact, in ambulatory care, there is a lot of work and discussion about that as well. And so these are the kinds of, I think, more macro questions that a study like this can really encourage us to think about because uh, we are not going to take the results of this study and really improve care by just trying to deliver the results of this study one patient at a time. We will try to take the result. We will improve care if we take the results of this study and we say, how do we rationalize our overall system of care using this information and information like it in standardization of those processes, both of how we manage pain and how we measure pain, and then how we improve it over time is really the critical issue here, I believe. 
All right. Thank you very much. Um, next question, Aubrey. The next question will be from Marcia, again, with the Healthcare Communication Associate. Please go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I actually was primarily wanting to uh, thank Dr. Tadio for bringing up the notion that um, while we might be very concerned about what we are doing with our medications, we need to simultaneously be concerned about what we're doing when we don't provide those medications and we enable the child to have pain. The uh, number of children who have, the, the number of procedures these kids undergo has been documented to be an average of 433 during their NICU stays. And I think that's important to remember that children have underdeveloped or undeveloped uh, neurologic systems that can lead to chronic pain syndromes perhaps even more frequently than in the adult population. And that should be a counterbalancing um, concern when we're worried about, well, we have some unknown effects of the medications. So I just wanted to reemphasize that that's a critically important point that is often overlooked um, by concerned clinicians. They're very thoughtful about what they're doing. Thanks, Marcia. Thanks for jumping back in uh, to, to make that point. Um, let, let's keep going. I want to make sure I get to everybody in queue. Okay. The next person will be, or the next question, excuse me, will be from Carolyn with Tulane Lakeside Hospital. Please go ahead. Uh, yes. In, in essence, we feel maybe our question's been answered. We were wondering about the dosages of morphine utilized in the study with Dr. Anand's work with using decreased dosages, and we've been pretty effective with the use of sucrose and comfort measures along with medication. And our other question was the impl implication on this study on other procedures. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Taddeo? I'm not sure I heard the beginning part of the question. Did you want to know our dose? Is that what you asked? Sounds like some of that was answered, but, but Carolyn, does that need to be clarified still? Uh, yes, please. Okay. So we gave a single dose unlike Dr. Anand's study where he gave a single dose, which I believe is the same, that was 100 micrograms per kilogram, and we gave that as an infusion over 20 minutes, and I believe Dr. Anand gave it as an infusion over an hour, and he followed that up with an uh, infusion dose of uh, 10 or 20 or 30 mics per kilo per hour, depending on the age or size of the baby, but of course we only gave one single dose. So the dose is not different, the single dose is not different from what Dr. Anand used. And as far as uh, implementing or translating this to other procedures, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty clear to us. Uh, it's, and what we expect is that morphine will decrease pain from procedures. So the results can be extrapolated to other procedures. Um, and that's our sense is that, uh, you know, you, you can use it for the procedures. But it's interesting that uh, um, people will need to decide how frequently they think they can give it. One of the questions, were there any concerns about the absorption um, through the skin of the gel that was being utilized or the amounts or number of sites it was placed at a time? Uh, not particularly. We used 0.5 grams and what was in the literature is a dose of 1 to 1.5 grams uh, in the smallest of babies. We used 0.5 grams. We actually applied it to two different sites because we thought if the uh, pick was unsuccessful at one site, if another site would have to be poked, then we picked sort of an alternative site so we could at least have the analgesia for the second poke. Uh, in general, uh, the drug is very quickly metabolized so quickly that it's not even measurable in the blood. So I don't think it's ever been measured, and anyone who tried to measure it didn't find it. So we're, we're not too worried about uh, absorption. Thank Anything? you. Okay. Thank you, Carolyn. Aubrey, anyone else in queue? Uh, we do. We have five in the queue remaining. All right. Well, let's see if we can get at least uh, maybe 
two more questions in there. We'll, we'll try and see if we can kind of get to these things specifically. Go ahead. Okay, the next one will be from Tam with Sioux Valley Hospital. Please go ahead. Um, hi, this is Arlene Campshaw from Valley Hospital. We were wondering if the pharmacists could compare and contrast the eutectic measure, uh, mixture of lidocaine, which is the IMLA, versus the tetracaine. Are you asking, are you asking which one is most effective? Which, well, with the premature infant population, which one is most effective, and has she had experience using the IMLA cream? Uh, well, we don't have any specific information in the neonates or preterm neonates about which one is better, but the information in the literature in older age groups in children and in adults is that they're uh, more or less similar, so similar effectiveness. And in neonates, we prefer to use tetracaine over EMLA because there isn't the risk of methemoglobinemia with the uh, tetracaine formulation. Thank you. All right, thank you. Okay, Aubrey, someone else? The next question will be from Janice with St. Joseph Regional Medical. Please go ahead. Hi, I'm also asking about the morphine. We're used to seeing morphine given as IV boluses here, and I just wondered if there was a specific reason that it was given as an infusion for the study over 20 minutes. Yes, we did have a specific reason for giving the morphine as an infusion rather than a two or three minute bolus dose, and that was to try to minimize the risk of side effects. So uh, in general, opioid mediated or so opioid adverse effects are diminished if you uh, increase the uh, infusion time or you decrease the dose. So we're trying to not put too much in the blood at one time to try to minimize the risk of hypotension. What was our, our thinking? Thank you. Well, we're covering a lot of ground here. Uh, by my count, maybe there's three more people in queue. Maybe we'll get them all in. Uh, Aubrey, someone else? Okay. Our next question is from Jean with Fairview Hospital. Okay. Uh, this is Prashanti again from Fairview Hospital. Now, I'm looking through the data. Now, is there any difference, significant difference in score between uh, morphine and tetracaine group versus the morphine alone group? I'm sorry, I didn't hear the question. Was there a difference where? In your pain scores, any significant difference in the pain scores between morphine and tetracaine group versus morphine alone? No. There no were no differences in morphine alone versus uh, tetracaine plus morphine for any of the outcomes that we measured. Well, because tetracaine did add a little bit of benefit. So the, the issue here is one of power. So we didn't have sufficient power to be able to demonstrate a difference with those two groups. But overall, there was a lower pain score in babies who got both combined. So there was a little bit of value added with tetracaine, but not statistically significantly so. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Aubrey, how many people left? Um, we actually just have one because one person decided to drop out. <laughs> okay, they didn't feel pressure. Okay, let's, let's, let's get that last question in. Okay, the last question for today will come from Maureen with UUHC. Hello, I was wondering if you have any information on using Sentinel or Versed instead of the morphine and especially using Versed for the non-intubated baby. Uh, no, we actually don't have any information and we don't have uh, any experience in our units. We don't uh, usually use uh, benzodiazepines for this procedure. Um, we usually try to use morphine. Thank you. All right, thanks. 
Well, wonderful. And a lot of people uh, stuck around and came back on the line, and that's terrific. Um, well, we are uh, coming to the end, uh, and that is all the time we have for questions. Uh, just as a reminder, there's a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue a conversation with one another. To find the link to this web-based conversation, go to IHI.org, look under Community, then Discussion Groups, then Author in the Room. In order to view or participate in the group, you have to register with IHI.org, but that's very free and it's simple to do so. Uh, we're coming to the end of what is really our 13th in a series of hour-long discussions called Author in the Room. I want to thank uh, Dr. Tadio, Dr. Shaw, and Dr. Kylo for their knowledge and guidance today. And I'd like to give Dr. Tadio and Dr. Kylo uh, each about you know, 30, 40 seconds uh, just to make a brief uh, closing uh, remark. Uh, Dr. Tadio, let's start with you. I, I would say that... Um we found that morphine, again, just to summarize the study, we found that morphine alone or morphine and tetracaine together were more effective than no analgesia or tetracaine alone for central line placement in neonates. And we recommend that these drugs be used whenever possible to decrease pain in these children. Thank you. Dr. Kylo. Dr. Kylo, are you there? I was on mute. Sorry about that. Matt. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I also would like to thank Dr. Tadia and Dr. Shaw for their wonderful contribution here, uh, both in the, on the article and on this conference call. I would, in closing, encourage folks to use this study again to think about their NICU pain management processes and systems and to think about instituting, if you don't already have one, a NICU pain management committee uh, that will uh, begin to standardize uh, uh, pain management uh, across the ICU. I think the idea of a hospital-wide pain management audit is really a great one. Uh, and if that's too much for you, think about a NICU pain management audit. And I would really uh, encourage us all to consider the structure of improvement in the, in the neonatal ICU, specifically how do you go about taking data, good science like this, and getting it into practice in your ICU. Thanks, Patch. Thank you. Uh, Author in the Room returns on April 19th from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. The article we'll learn more about is called All or None Measurement Raises the Bar on Performance. It was published in the March 8, 2006 issue of JAMA. Both authors will be with us, IHI President and CEO Donald Berwick and IHI Senior Fellow Tom Nolan. Uh, Dr. Kylo will be on hand as well to help guide the discussion, and you can look for details on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Again, thanks to our guests and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day, everyone. <laughs>